0: Welcome to a new podcast series, The Growing Pandemic, How Innovation and Collaboration Can End Alzheimer's. Brought to you by the Global CEO Initiative on Alzheimer's Disease, or CEOI, this podcast series explores opportunities to accelerate our fight against Alzheimer's disease shared during the 2020 Lausanne Workshop. This convening, held each year in Lausanne, Switzerland, is the world's leading stage for global dialogue on how to speed new innovations in prevention, treatment, and care to those impacted by Alzheimer's. CEOI is an organization of private sector leaders who have joined together to provide business leadership in the fight against Alzheimer's, a growing pandemic that threatens to devastate communities, national health systems, and the global economy if we fail to act. In Episode 1, we'll discuss why collaboration between regulators and industry is essential to advance innovation in Alzheimer's and how regulatory agencies must evolve to keep pace with scientific progress that is enabling detection and therapeutic interventions earlier in the disease. John Lim, the Executive Director, Center of Regulatory Excellence at Duke National University of Singapore Medical School and the Chairman of the Consortium for Clinical Research and Innovation Singapore, is joined by current and former regulatory officials. Andy von Eschenbach, former Commissioner of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and Director of the National Cancer Institute. Maria Tomei, a Senior Scientific Officer at the European Medicines Agency. Klaus Bolt, Head of Marketing Authorization and Management Board member at Swiss Medic in Switzerland, and Ken Tsukashima, Principal Reviewer in Clinical Medicine in the Office of New Drug 23 at the Pharmaceuticals and Medical Devices Agency in Japan. Together, they share their perspectives on Alzheimer's changing regulatory landscape and lessons from COVID-19 that can be applied in the global fight against Alzheimer's, the growing global pandemic. Please note that the opinions expressed by participants are their own and do not necessarily reflect the positions of the organizations they represent.
1: Over the past two years, the Lausanne workshop has focused on two main regulatory themes. The first one is the importance of building infrastructure that enables global regulatory alignment and also information sharing for Alzheimer's disease. The second theme is why and how regulatory agencies must evolve to account for advances in the science that are enabling interventions earlier in the disease for both detection tools as well as for therapeutics. So today, we're going to speak in more detail about both of these themes, but acknowledging that we also find ourselves at a very, very interesting time in the regulatory journey for AD. So, of course, many of you would know that in the U.S., aducanumab, which is a human monoclonal antibody targeting beta amyloid, will be reviewed by the FDA. And in fact, the EMA, the European Medicines Agency, has already accepted aducanumab for review. Interestingly, in China, the NMPA, or the National Medical Products Administration, has already approved a new treatment for mild to moderate AD and improving cognitive function. For the first part of the discussion, we'd like to dwell a bit on where are we headed from a regulatory perspective in terms of AD? What are the biggest challenges? What should we be thinking about and asking ourselves as new therapeutics and diagnostics enter the pipeline? And I'd like to pose the question first to Andy. Could you tell us a bit about what a regulatory agency would look for as it considers approval of a new product how can we create both comfort and confidence for a regulator so that developers and companies can get the decision and outcome that, in fact, not only the companies but the patients want to move therapies forward? And certainly, from your own experience and perspective, are there any particular learnings from oncology?
2: Thank you, John. I think you framed it perfectly by recognizing that for regulatory agencies to make a decision, they need to be both confident and comfortable with that decision. The confidence emanates from the data itself. And without the data, and without it being scientifically sound and subject to all the appropriate scrutiny, you do not have the basis for a decision. But you have to go beyond the confidence in the data to really comfort with the entire process. And that, I think, involves the agency being engaged in the total life cycle of these products. And so regulators who can engage very early on with the sponsor in the discovery end of the continuum so that you have insights into the preclinical data that's been generated, understanding how in fact this particular compound is expected to work once being applied in human condition. It goes then into being engaged with the actual clinical assessment Of the product and participating even in the design of the clinical trials and the expectations with regard to the endpoints and outputs and outcomes. But it doesn't even end there. It continues on, I believe, even after the process of approval, in which I think regulatory agencies stay engaged in post-market and post-market surveillance, and we have the opportunity to understand the performance of these products in large populations that are far more diverse than we would ever accomplish in the context of a prospective randomized trial. And so that comfort level comes from being engaged in total life cycle where there's an in-depth understanding and trust, and not only does the data support that the compound is safe and effective, but we understand the how and the why it may be achieving the appropriate outcome in the patients that it's being applied to. With confidence in the data and comfort in the process, then I think we accelerate regulatory approvals. The Lesson I think that our oncology has taught us and that regulators need to keep in mind is that when we approve a drug, we're really approving a reagent. A reagent that then participates in what is essentially a human experiment to understand the disease itself by the way in which that reagent is impacting and affecting the biology of the disease. And so with that in mind, it's often the case that progress will be incremental. First in class is generally not always the best in class. And so as we learned in oncology, an approval of a drug may not be the approval of the final solution. It may be the approval of the first step in an ongoing experiment upon which we can continuously improve. We can continuously discover newer or better modifications of that drug, or even more importantly, discover the integration and interoperable combination of that drug with other interventions, the sum of which gives us a solution to the problem, whether it's cancer or Alzheimer's.
1: Thanks very much, Andy. Maria, tell us a bit more about the latest in EMA thinking as it relates to the qualification of new products.
3: Thank you very much. Part of our job also in the agency is to work with these collaborations. We learn science all the time. And a good example was when we started in Alzheimer, and, and we have Adaconumac as an example. Nobody was believe that we can develop the product based in the biomarket. And in reality, they have used biomarkets developed by these platforms, like the PET, to enroll the patients. And they have used these biomarkets also for see the efficacy of the product.
1: Thank you very much. Klaus, can you share a bit from the Swiss Medic perspective and any other thoughts as well in terms of this particular area, the kind of issues and challenges being faced by regulators for AD products?
4: I'd like to add perhaps... That there needs to be more of an emphasis on an early dialogue. When you accompany a research group or a research based company, startup, or spin off, especially the smaller ones, you can detect quite early where they are at in their development, and if they are not only on the right track in terms of taking necessary regulatory hurdles, but also if they are on the right track of developing a compound appropriately. So early dialogue is very important to avoid failures, or if you fail, then you should fail early in order not to waste any resources. Early dialogue would be number one. So my second point would be, as a regulator, let's focus more on establishing the diagnosis earlier and also validating those uh, methodologies in combination, in collaboration with companies that uh, develop those tools, smart apps, artificial intelligence apps, and uh, tools the
1: like. Thank you very much, Klaus. Very, very clear. I think this issue of early dialogue is extremely important, and basically all stringent regulatory authorities, as far as I know around the world, offer that option. And I think this is something very critical, as you've highlighted, rather than sort of let things move on to a point where early issues were not addressed up front. Yesterday, Sarepta was mentioned as an example of where a drug was approved, and this stimulated additional investment in research related to that disease and so the question is, are we facing the same situation here potentially with aducanumab? Would its approval likely spur additional investment? Andy, what are your thoughts on this?
2: I think it goes back to the issue of comfort and incrementalism that we learn from the experience. And once a product is available to be used in the widespread medical community, we begin to understand nuances with regard to that utilization, different populations, for example, that may have a greater or lesser degree of response, finding where there may be adjunctive kind of interventions that enhance or improve. So it does open the door, John. And once the door is open and there's the opportunity for that incremental growth in both knowledge and clinical improvement, then I think that brings a larger focus and a larger population of effort. So the simple answer is yes, an approval will in fact open and stimulate greater progress, but it's not simply a commercial opportunity. It's a scientific opportunity. It's a clinical opportunity. At the core and the heart of all of this, there are desperate patients for whom there is relatively nothing else available. And so, When we were in oncology and we had a drug that produced a 30% response rate, that clearly was not the solution to cancer. But it was the critical first step in going to another drug that got us to 60%. And finally, in testicular cancer, when we had three drugs together, we virtually were able to cure patients with widespread metastatic disease. I think that same model will apply here in Alzheimer's disease, and the first approval will start that journey. I think for listeners, it's important also to point out that once a regulator approves a drug, it doesn't mean from that point on we're totally, completely blindfolded or oblivious to what is subsequently happening. So the ability for the agencies to stay engaged in post-market, to continue to have the tools for surveillance and understanding the performance of these products in the real world and under different circumstances, and then continuously adjust and modify the regulatory decision as that data becomes more available and and appropriate for decision making. So it's important for, I think, the public who are scrutinizing our decisions to understand that we have the opportunity and tools today to make regulatory approvals, a continuous learning process and a continuous improvement process, and we can modify and change and alter labeling and regulatory decisions as we learn more and do more for the benefit of patients.
1: Thanks, Andy. That's a particularly important point, and Klaus will come in in a minute, but I just wanted to emphasize, I think this aspect is important for the audience to know that, in fact, regulation Is able, and as we see this even with COVID products coming up, to move from the pre market decision making, but to have more of the post market real world evidence, real world data collection is an extremely significant aspect of regulation these days. And so we're looking at the whole life cycle of a drug rather than just the point of approval. And it has moved on from a single point to actually multiple points. Klaus, over to you.
4: You have to start small. In oncology, we increasingly see genetically defined tiny subgroups, which we approve a drug for in the first place. Tiny subgroups, they have often drug designations quite frequently. And that is your foot in the door, as Andy mentioned it. Uh, that is your foot in the door. You can expand from then on with real-world data, real-world evidence even, but you have to make a start, and a smaller start with a... Uh, well-defined, not necessarily, in our case, genetically defined subpopulation, a small subpopulation based on AI, machine learning, and some intelligent, smart tools, a tiny subpopulation, and approval for this uh, subgroup would help all of us, in particular, all those patients, tremendously.
1: But Ken, I would like to understand more about the situation in Japan, because Research into neurodegenerative disorders and therapies is moving very significantly in Japan. And of course, Japan is a major member of the Davos Alzheimer's Collaborative as well. Could you tell us a bit more about the whole landscape in terms of R&D there for degenerative products and how PMDA is responding to this? Because I believe new processes have been put in place to approve cellular therapies, for example. Ken, over to you. Thank you for the question. Let me answer your question with starting the category of medicinal product in Japan. So we have pharmaceuticals, medical devices and regenerative product. So that our regenerative product has a special scheme for early approval. So it is a great way to enhance the regenerative product development. On the other hand, so pharmaceutical is another category, so including Alzheimer drugs. It also has uh, another scheme called Sakigake. It is uh, enhanced drug development so much. So that there are some schemes, so initiatives related to enhanced uh, drug and medicinal product and regenerative product in Japan. Thank you, Ken. And to the audience, I would recommend that you look at the PMDA and Japanese uh, situation uh, a bit more because I was there in Tokyo when Sakigake was launched several years ago. And it has actually changed the whole perspective of the PMDA, both in terms of how people perceive PMDA and how they've actually moved on very fast in terms of approvals. I'd like now to shift the conversation back. I'd like to spend some minutes to ask you your perspectives on the implications of COVID 19 for AD and therapies. And maybe, Klaus, could you begin first by telling us about Swiss Medics' response to this? Uh, what have you learned, uh, certainly in the last nine to 10 months? And what have you seen do you think that we can apply to AD, particularly as it relates to what you already mentioned in terms of artificial intelligence and digital solutions and diagnosis? Klaus?
4: Yes, thanks, John. Well, looking back at our early Lausanne days, I remember two things that helped us a lot. Number one, there was, and there is today as well within the COVID-19 pandemic, there is global acknowledgement that indeed we have a health crisis. And number two, there was also political recognition, political recognition that this indeed has an impact on national economies. I remember that at the time, David Cameron, he was head of the G7 or G8 at the time, including Russia group of nations, and he was far-sighted. It was very clear to him, and he put a lot of weight into this uh, G7, G8, and later OECD initiative, he lent us a lot of weight by recognizing politically that indeed there is an impact, an economic, a long-term impact that uh, we all have to bear. And th- these two components come together now as well in this COVID-19 pandemic. This uh, acknowledgement, a global or international one, and also political effort, and there are some great public-private partnerships as well, when you look at some of these vaccine candidates. So these two components, I guess, are commonalities, from what I remember from our early Lausanne days. And this helped us a lot also right now in this COVID-19 pandemic. We clearly need our political leaders to, to understand the impact of any burden of disease, if it's Alzheimer's, if it's COVID 19, the COVID 19 pandemic, or any other disease in our societies. And it is up to us, to some extent, regulators. We regulators are closer somehow to our political leaders, even though strictly independent, of course, to educate them on the impact that any disease, a pandemic, or the horrible Alzheimer's dementia endemic situation will have on their economies.
1: Very good. Thank you, Klaus, as always. And what lessons can be learned potentially for AD therapies?
3: I think in, in one way, COVID-19 has given us the capability to see that we are very free to share information. It was really a commitment, and I agree with Klaus from the top, from the governments, that we, we are free to share information. You know, because a lot of times privacy laws really limit a lot. And and confidential information from companies, commercial information, it creates a lot of issues between us, even in the same building, to share documents. Okay? That is what they really needed. More transparency in commercial information, more transparency for us, even regulators, to talk between agencies.
1: So I think this is something we do need to bear in mind and, in a sense, pick up the pace again as the pandemic settles. Andy, I wanted to specifically ask you, in relation to what we're talking about here, the issue of real-world evidence. It's How is it factored, from your perspective, into the COVID-19 response? And how do we potentially get to a similar place for AD?
2: Uh, you know, I think I want to echo the comments that Klaus and Maria emphasized, and that is... COVID-19 has really fostered unprecedented cooperation and collaboration. I've never seen this degree of interoperability between industries, between regulators, between governments. It's just been astounding. And the hope is that this will continue and carry over. It won't sort of go away once the crisis seemingly is resolved. I think one of the things that's coming about in terms of that collaboration and cooperation is the recognition that there have been certainly pockets of exceptional excellence. And I use the the metaphor, if you will, of a railway system where we've had great depots, depots of information, depots of knowledge, depots of data, but we didn't have the track that was of the same gauge to enable the ability to move across and share between those those depots. What's coming out of COVID-19, I think, is a lot of track building, a lot of agreement on what the right gauge of the track should be so that that ability to seamlessly share knowledge, insights, information, policy decisions, I think will become much more fluid, and I hope that that would continue and that we could import that are exported, if you will, well beyond COVID and a pandemic to this pandemic, which is Alzheimer's, and others, which are affecting us as humanity, not as whether we're Americans or or Japanese or Europeans, et cetera. So I think that's the one big issue is that ability to fluidly, continuously collaborate. I think it's also emphasized the importance of real world evidence and real-world data to begin to have real-time, in the real world, understanding and assessment of the evolution and natural history of the disease. One of the things that real-world evidence illuminated, for example, in this disease is um, the understanding of the post-viral syndrome, or long callers syndrome, the fact that what we thought was a respiratory virus at the outset turned out to have a far greater impact as an endothelial virus that's attacking the lining of blood vessels and organs like the brain, the kidney, the heart, et cetera, that it's disrupting the immunologic system in ways that are producing perhaps autoimmune disease as a a subsequent consequence of the disease. So real-world evidence is playing a role in understanding the natural history of the disease. It's also helping us to understand the performance of products that are being approved through accelerated mechanisms like the emergency use authorizations. And that's been particularly helpful in sorting through uh, diagnostics, for example. And it's going to be increasingly important as we begin to look at the availability of vaccines and knowing that there will be multiple vaccines that will be approved, widely used, and disseminated. And we'll need to have and infrastructure real-world evidence to understand the performance of those vaccines in different populations and to understand the performance of the vaccines vis-a-vis one against the the other as so that policymakers and payers and providers will be able to make decisions with regard to appropriate utilization of, of those various vaccines. All that's
1: coming from real-world evidence. Thanks very much, Andy. I think in terms of everything that all of you have said, many, many things have happened in the last nine to 10 months, and the term unprecedented keeps being repeated all the time. I mean, at the beginning of the pandemic, people were saying it would take 12 to 18 months before a vaccine would appear. And already, even before the end of this year, we already begin to see approvals coming through with potential initial use in priority populations. And I I think the important thing now for at Alzheimer's is to make sure that these lessons really are uh, codified. They become part and parcel of the way in which regulators work. And at the beginning, we were alluding to the degree of collaboration that had already built up pre-COVID. I think COVID has actually taken it forward. I mean, there have been great opportunities in spite of the tragic circumstances of the pandemic. And as we address the pandemic with AD, I think it uh, behooves regulators and all the stakeholders in the system to really take these lessons to heart.
0: The successful race for a COVID-19 vaccine in progress in oncology has shown a spotlight on how science and technology give us the tools to conquer a global pandemic. It has also taught us a better way for scientists at regulatory agencies and drug manufacturers to work together to save lives and defeat devastating diseases. Build the infrastructure for global collaboration, communication, and data sharing. Invest in real-world evidence. Develop a cycle of continuous learning. These are the building blocks for enabling regulatory confidence in innovations that can conquer Alzheimer's disease, the growing pandemic. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the Lausanne Workshop and the Global CEO Initiative on Alzheimer's Disease, please visit usagainstalzheimers.org.